0: The Latter-day Lives Podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Friends, welcome to episode 132 of the Latter day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for joining us again this week after such a beautiful, wonderful conference uh, that we just had. This is a conference weekend we will certainly never forget. And I just I feel so uplifted and so happy. And we appreciate you joining us again this week. Before we jump into the conversation, I do want to thank our reviewers. Uh, We had two new reviews on Apple Podcasts, Uh, Lynette Shepard, who was our guest last week. Thank you, Lynette, as well as the user uh, name is Stephanie's nickname. Thank you so much for your five-star reviews and all of your kind words. Over at Facebook, we had Dale Huffaker, and thank you for the recommendation. And it really does help people to find our show and uh, helps us to grow. So we just are very thankful for you. Okay, this week in the conversation, my guest, Aaron Johnston, one of the most talented men I know, he is a tremendous screenwriter and uh, New York Times bestselling author and just a brilliant guy, not to mention a good, good man. I had such a good time hanging out with him. We actually recorded this a few weeks ago uh, before the whole coronavirus thing broke out, so we were able to get together in person, and I'm very grateful we were. He is fascinating, and you will love this conversation. And this week in my Latter-day Life, how hearts are turning in China. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. (laughs) And today, here in the Latter-day Live studios, we have the honor of having a New York Times best-selling author, as well as writer of all kinds of other good stuff, filmmaker, producer, creative director. I mean, you've got more titles than almost anyone who sat in that chair. Aaron Johnston, welcome to the show. Oh,
1: you're kind. Thanks for having me. It's delightful.
0: No, this is great. Uh, Aaron, we met gosh, probably 10 years ago at a Garen's reunion. Maybe it was more than 10 years ago. It was it was a while back. Yeah. But uh, we share that and we'll we'll kind of get to the Garen's, I'm sure, at some point. Uh, but first of all, let's get to know you a little bit. Tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up.
1: Yeah, so I'm from the South, um, or at least that's where I call home. My dad was, uh, when I was really young, my dad was in the military. We were kind of all over the place. But when my dad left the service, we kind of settled in Alabama, so my elementary and middle school years were in Alabama, northern Alabama, yeah. cotton country, way out in the boonies, Elkmont, Alabama. Uh, I actually recently went, went back there for the first time in a really, really long time. But anyway, uh, then, we, then we were in North Carolina, and my parents have been there ever since, so that's kind of where, where I call home.
0: Wow, yeah, very, very different from Utah.
1: Very different from Utah. You live in Utah now. I do. I, I live in Utah now. Yeah, yeah, we've been here about three years, and we love it.
0: Yeah, and were you raised in the church?
1: Uh, so my parents are converts to the church, so they joined the church when I was about four years old. Mm. Um, so essentially, I was raised in the church, but, I, but um, uh, yeah, my extended family aren't members of the church. I vaguely remember not having the church in our family, so mm. I, I'm... Um, it was it was quite the transition for for my parents who both came from um, kind of difficult upbringings without religion in the home. Yeah. So it was pretty transformative for them, and it also it also just tra- changed the trajectory of our family in lots of ways. Um, I right. you, know, you know, there's just me and my older sister at the time, and my parents had decided not to have any more children. Mm. Um, but after they joined the church, priorities changed. Uh, objectives change, and then a few years later, my younger brother and sister came along.
0: Wow, that's a big gap. Big yeah. spread.
1: Yeah, so it's it's almost like we have two sets of children in our family, because there's me and my sister, we're very close, and there's an eight-year gap between me and my younger sister, and a 10-year gap between me and my younger brother. We're all very close, Yeah. Um, but it was like two different sets of kids in the home, yeah. because my older sister and I were... Somewhat like parents to our younger siblings, of course, yeah. um, Which was a great annoyance to them, (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's us. That's our family.
0: That's awesome. You know, it's it's I admire it a lot. I I think you know joining the church in the Western U.S. is one thing. You know, if you join, not necessarily even Utah, but Arizona, Idaho, California, lots of members, big Latter-day Saint culture to fold into. Maybe not as much in the South. Uh, yeah, certainly not. Uh, um, you know, I, having grown up in the
1: South uh, as a member of the church, a lot of my friends obviously were born-again Christians, very devout in their faith, uh, usually highly skeptical of our faith. Yeah. Um, in fact, when, um, when I came out to BYU, a dear friend of mine, she's still a friend of mine, her father, with the best of intentions, you know, sent me a bunch of, mailed me a bunch of anti-Mormon literature when I got to BYU thinking, that, <laughs> oh, now that Aaron is out of his home, he's out of that little corrupt bubble that that he's yeah. been living under, and maybe we can influence him for good. So, um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, you know and as is mo- for most people outside of Utah, you know, as one of the very few kids in my high school that was a member of the church... Yeah, early morning seminary, um, just a, a different experience from what my kids are currently experiencing. Very,
0: yeah, very much so. What yeah. were you into when you were a kid? Uh,
1: so you know, I really liked, um, I really liked writing. I really liked. Um, I, I was one of those stereotypical make-home movies kids, you know, mm. Ex- you, that you like spielberg and jj abrams but i'm not either of those <laughs> individuals um but yeah i just i liked making home movies yeah you know uh with my
0: siblings you get through high school what came next
1: so um yeah so i went to byu and and it's funny because i only applied to two schools i applied to byu and north carolina school of the arts mm. um it was a. It, it's a very reputable school. They had just. They were just starting a film program there, um, and I think if I had got in, I probably would have went there, and my life would have went a completely different direction.
0: Sure. Yeah.
1: Um, because it's it's a very different environment than 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 I, BYU. I would imagine. Um, but yeah, I did a year at BYU, which was a great experience for me. Um, I, my sister, my older sister went to BYU, but I never, again, my parents were converts, so we didn't necessarily have a deep cultural tradition in our home in the church, right? right? Yeah. My dad didn't serve a mission, obviously, he's a convert. And none of, none of my parents went to BYU. In fact, yeah. we had never even, as a family, come to Utah until we dropped off my sister here. Mm. Um, so, I kind of went to BYU just knowing, oh, that's the church school, and I and several of my friends, you know, in North Carolina had really wanted to go to BYU, so it was just I was kind of tagged along. Yeah, I didn't honestly know a tremendous amount about the school, um, but I felt like oh that's that's the good Mormon thing for me to do. Yeah, so I applied and and luckily I got in. Um, I don't know that I could get in today, but I, but at the time, <laughs> I was able to get in, uh, and it was a great it was a great experience for me. Yeah,
0: you did one year there before your mission. I did. Yeah. Did you get into any film classes, or was it just generals at that time?
1: So I applied to the film program. It actually was it was it was, it was very difficult to get into the film program at the time, and probably still is. Yeah. Um, you I had to watch like fifty movies and and write a brief little essay of each, you know, like a little couple paragraphs for each film. Uh, I, I mean, my application for the film program at BYU was above and beyond the most difficult, comprehensive thing I did my freshman year. Really? Yeah. Uh, wow. uh, and I took a pretty heavy course load, too. But applying to the film program was almost like a full-time job. Jeez. Or at least it felt like that to me. Um, but what was interesting is, and I did take some film classes that first year, they, they had us take this symposium class where... Uh, professionals from the industry would come and talk to all the students. It was a required course. Uh, and every time a screenwriter would come, he or she would always say, don't do it, right? <laughs> don't pursue the film program. My wife or my husband hates it. You know, it's such a pressure because it's job to job. And 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 so I think the intent with the, with the professors was, hey, let's get them excited. Let's give them some real world experience and kind of broaden their understanding. But all it did for me, honestly, was discourage me. All it did hmm. was just... In, kind of in, incite this fear in me, and like, oh gosh, um, this isn't stable at all. Um, and so I did get into the program, but after my mission, actually, I think I think I, as all folks do on their mission, I matured a great deal. And I thought, sure. goodness, um, I need to I need to provide for my family. I need stable income, uh, and film isn't that. So, I actually changed my major after after uh, my mission. I changed my major to, well, I knew I still wanted to write, and I knew I still wanted to pursue creative writing, and so I uh, studied advertising.
0: Oh, yeah, smart. Yeah. yeah.
1: And I minored in film.
0: Yeah, and advertising, they've got a great advertising program. We've had a couple of guests come through who have been through that program at BYU.
1: Yeah, it's a phenomenal program. It wasn't that when I was there. In fact, the Ad Lab wasn't birthed until... A couple years after I left, yeah. So the 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 program there it really wasn't a creatively driven program. It was very account driven, mm. um, or market research driven, which is all very dry to me. Yeah, sure. Um, but I kind of muscled my way through that and build a pathetically uncreative portfolio <laughs> that I, that I was able to use to get a really really good internship um, in New York, and that's really. How I got into the industry.
0: Before we get into that part, where did you serve your mission? I served in Venezuela.
1: Oh, wow. The Valencia, Venezuela mission. It's, uh, it's, North Americans aren't even called to that mission anymore. Yeah. Uh, In fact, even non Venezuelans aren't called to the mission. We had a fair share of of missionaries Mm. from Colombia or Bolivia or other Latin American countries. Yeah. Uh, But now, just because of the uh, the political unrest there, the social and the economic yeah. instability there.
0: Um, how heartbreaking is it to see what's happened to oh, Venezuela? It's, it's been awful. You know, I devastating.
1: Mean, yeah, because you know, a mission when you when you're amongst people, you very, and particularly when you're teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you see how the the church and the joy of the gospel can transform their lives. You develop this deep love for them. And as a result, a love for their culture, right? Um, And um, yeah, it's just heartbreaking to see what that country has endured.
0: You come home, you you're doing this advertising track. Yeah, tell us about the internship you got in New York.
1: So I interned at an agency called Ogilvy and Mather in in New York. Holy
0: cow! I like that you drop that as if it's not a big deal. I (laughs) mean,
1: most people don't know it; aren't familiar with the agency. Yeah, um, I mean,
0: David Ogilvy. Yeah, in fact, I was.
1: I was there during my internship, David Ogilvy passed away really um, and they had this this moment where uh, they had this bagpiper kind of walk through the halls of the agency, and everyone stood, and we kind of paid our respects to David Ogilvy, who was just you know an icon, if not the icon you know all, i I, I don't know
0: advertising, and I yeah. know David ogilvy and yeah. and. And I believe that, I mean, he kind of revolutionized, not kind of, he revolutionized advertising. He did. Mad Men was somewhat based on the 1960s version of Ogilvy's yeah, exactly. agency, loosely, I mean, obviously. But, you know, I mean, it's iconic. That You you hit the slam, you know, I home was very, run. I
1: was very, very fortunate. In fact, you'll as we continue to talk, you'll just learn that my career has been just a series of
0: happy accidents. (laughs) Um, and um, I I think it's important, though. You are a very talented guy. That's kind of you. And I will also say you are one of the most universally liked people I know. Oh, you're nice to say so. We have so many mutual friends, and everybody just adores you. So I think there was a lot of hard work, faith, and a lot of uh, just being a good soul that got you there. But I'll let you go on. (laughs) Go, Go ahead. So how was it working in New York?
1: Uh, it was delightful. Um, you were uh, in Manhattan. I was, yeah. yeah. In the the interns from BYU, we all stayed at the. It was called the International House at Columbia University. It's where mm. a lot of their international students reside. So it was in the northern part of Manhattan, right near Columbia. So we would we would you know we would take the train the subway down to uh, down to the agency uh, and. And it was great. It was delightful. the 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 only reason I got that internship was because my creative director at the time, a man by the name of Kevin Kelly, LDS, he now's a he's now a professor actually at the Ad Lab at BYU, mm. but just a delightful human being. I had no business doing an internship there, particularly as a copywriter. But um, Kevin was just so gracious and so kind, and so was everyone else that I worked with. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, the, I was there. He he actually allowed me to work on. The Office of National Drug Control Policy campaign, uh, which at the time there was just a tremendous amount of money that the government was putting into that campaign because because drugs was a terrible problem and still is.
0: Sure.
1: Um, But I was on the team that we. This was country time, lemonade, Huggies diapers, uh, and high sea fruit drinks. I mean, just iconic brands. You went from
0: the South to Provo (laughs) to New York to New York.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but it was great though because the uh, energy. yeah, Incredible. I love New York yeah. and still do. because um, yeah. I'd work at the agency and, and and I had nothing to go home to. I was just at the, and at the international house and so I, you know it was a room. It was like three square feet, right? <laughs> um, and so I would just go to shows at night, you know. Mm. And and because I was a student, I kind of discovered oh, if you actually go to Blue Man Group and you agree to clean up afterwards and agree to pass out, um, um, you know the the playbill when people show up you can see the show for free mm. so i did that with so many shows i would go to all these off off broadway productions and i'd pass out the playbills and awesome. i'd help seat people and i saw in fact i saw the lion king you know the original production of the lion king julie Taymor directed um and i stood up in the back <laughs> and saw it you know for nothing but uh oh, that's incredible. Oh, it was incredible. Mean, that it was, was sold out forever. It was an incredible time as well. It it was just uh it was a wonderful experience for me. So where'd you go from New York? From New York I got my first job in advertising and, and also at this time, this is when I got married, my, my my wife Lauren. I leave New York, I get my first job in advertising at a midsized agency in North Carolina. Mm. Um and at the time, I was, I was just desperate for any job, right? Um, I had built a portfolio in my brief time in, in New York, thanks to the, the, the gracious nature of everyone around me. Um, so, yeah, so it was an agency called Trone. They're still around, surprisingly. Um, uh, this is in Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, and it was actually the agency that created, of all things, Joe Camel.
0: Really? <laughs> yeah. So this was, this was before I got there. Um, For our younger audience, that's uh, Camel Cigarettes. Camel
1: Cigarettes, yeah. So, so Greensboro is very close to uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which yeah. is home to RJR and Nabisco, which produces Winston cigarettes, Salem cigarettes, uh, Camel cigarettes. Uh, so North Carolina is tobacco country. Yeah. And when I interviewed, I learned this about the agency. And my creative director at the time, he was from New York, uh, he assured me, he's like, look, we have this dark history here of having done tobacco, but I, I assure you, we'll never do tobacco again. Mm. He knew I was LDS, because yeah. um, that had come up in the interview Um and he said, "You you can rest assured that you'll never have to do anything for which you don't feel comfortable here." And I was like, "Awesome, I'm on board." But it was interesting to work with folks, you know, who had been subpoenaed by Congress to testify about Joe Camel because, yeah. you know, there was this. For again, for the younger audience, there was there was this belief that Joe Camel had been
0: created to target uh, to minors. Yeah, he's right? a cartoon, and he was cool.
1: Yeah. So I yeah so I worked at this agency. Um, and it was a great learning experience. It was, uh, I mean, I, I mean, having, I was a nobody. I was a junior copywriter. And so I got all the dregs of the agency, right? My very <laughs> first account was a, an animal pharmaceutical account. So basically a veterinarian pharmaceutical wow. account. Wow. So it was drugs for <laughs> horses with these awful, terrible horse diseases. Or it was, in fact, I think the first product I, I worked on was... It was a liquid bandage for cat wounds. Oh so, my gosh! So, so they're like Johnston. They're like, you know, like, hey, here's your first assignment. And they gave me this binder that was full of photos of cat wounds. <laughs> I mean, and, and so I told Lauren Aaron, at the time. I'm like, "Oh, oh my goodness, so it, can, it can only go up from here." Oh, and So funny, but it was it was a good experience, uh, and I had a, I, I did I did some fun things. How long there. were you there? I was there three years. Yeah, and and things took a turn very very quickly when I was there, simply because the economy was doing really really poorly, uh, and our the president of the agency. Unbeknownst to anyone in the agency, went out and secured a tobacco account. They asked my partner and I, because in advertising, a writer is always partnered with an art director. Um, very gifted art director designer that I was that I was working with. They asked us, we're like, Okay, guys, are you gonna work on this tobacco account? And we're like, uh yeah, no, sorry, we can't we yeah. can't do that. And we were laid off a week later. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, was that ever a
0: consideration? Did you ever stop and go, look, it's, it's my job, it's okay? Or was it just, no, that's a line I'm not going to cross?
1: Well, it's funny you ask that, because at the time, Lauren was pregnant with our first child. Um, she had been teaching school, because uh, you know, she taught for a couple years before we had kids. Um, and the day I was laid off was the day she actually had resigned from her job. Like oh, that morning, man. she had resigned from the school. Right, the pressure. Like two, three hours later, I get laid off. Yeah, right? um, and yeah, and I think there was there was a moment, you know, as um, here I am about to be a father. Yeah, uh, we had no other <laughs> income, and I'm like, did I make the right decision? Did I do the right thing? Is this? And of course, you know, as, as far as her leaving her job, yeah, you know, that's something we had prayed about. Obviously, we had given a lot of careful consideration to that. Sure. But, but we knew that you know, that this is what the Lord had wanted for our family, we did not expect this.
0: So where'd you go from there?
1: So the, the, after that, I started doing freelance. Mm. I did a lot of uh, freelance, not a lot. For a little while, I started doing freelance, um, and that was big. I made a ton of money doing freelance, and I thought, my goodness, I should have left the agency a long time <laughs> ago. But uh, at this time, though, where we were living in Greensboro, we had befriended Orson Scott Card. That's where he and his wife live. So when I first took this job uh, at this agency, we moved into the ward of Scott Card and his wife, Christine.
0: And give us uh, – Orson Scott Card is a huge mega name. I yeah. mean, huge. Give us uh, – for if, if we do have a couple of listeners who don't know him, tell us who Orson Scott Card is.
1: So uh, Orson Scott Card um, – is arguably one of the biggest names in uh, science fiction and speculative fiction. Um, he won the Hugo and Nebula Award for his novel *Ender's Game*, for which he's most
0: known. I think. Yeah, *Ender's Game* is probably his biggest. His
1: by and far his biggest novel. Yeah, yeah. and and it's and it's it's a it's an icon of the science fiction world. It's one of the greatest science fiction, if not the greatest science fiction novel ever written. Yeah, uh, you'll have people argue. I certainly say so. Yeah. Um, and and so, and, and Scott's a very prolific writer as well. You know, he, the very next year, again, he won the Hugo and the Nebula Award, which are like the Oscars and the other Oscars in <laughs> in the science fiction world yeah. for his sequel to Ender's Gang, which is called Speaker for the Dead. Um, and um, he's just... Both in and outside of the church, he's he's just
0: yeah very active guy. Very active uh, in in the church. Uh, Were you a sci-fi fan before you met Scott? Um,
1: I was a sci-fi fan in the cultural sense. I, okay. I um, movies, TV shows, and whatnot. You know, I didn't read a lot of sci-fi growing up. Yeah, um, I read some. You know, I had read *Ender's Game*, certainly. Um, but yeah, I, and I and I actually don't even read a lot of science fiction today. I read some, but mm. I mostly read thrillers and mysteries. Um, yeah. Um, so I knew, obviously I knew who Orson Scott Card was because mm-hmm. um, I did read a lot when I was a kid, right. um, And still do. Um, and so yeah, it always kind so of so you met
0: in your that. ward how. How does that lead to you guys working together? So,
1: it was interesting. Scott w- Scott studied theater at BYU um, and uh, wanted to be a playwright um, and actually wrote a, a lot of productions that were performed at BYU while he was a student there. He became very well known as a playwright while he's at BYU. But he quickly learned after his college experience that it's very hard to be It's very hard to make a living as a playwright. And so, that's how he got into novels. So, his first love is theater. And when he met me and Lauren and learned that we had been in the Garens and that we had done some theatrical productions at BYU, um, he said, oh, we need to put on show. We need, you know, I think at the time he was the stake cultural arts director or (laughs) or something, right?
0: That's pretty good. Yeah. Orson Scott Card is your stake cultural arts guy. That's all right.
1: And so we did. This was kind of our outlet for Lauren and me. Before we had kids, we did a lot of shows that Scott directed. So I knew Scott as a theater director, um, working with actors before I knew him, uh, before he and I did anything together. And um, eventually, he learned that I was – we got to know each other very well, obviously, as you do in a theater community. Sure. And he knew that I had studied – um screenwriting minored in film the byu and one day he says to me he's like hey you know there's this script that some folks in la wrote based on a short story of mine the sc- the screen it needs a rewrite the screenwriter is unavailable because he's doing something else you interested in taking a crack at this right and i'm like <laughs> um yeah i think yeah i, can, I, think, I, think, I, I think i'll, can I'll take, take a, a swing. stab at it <laughs> um so i did a so i did a a um a rewrite of a script of his. It's based on a short story called Dog Walker. It's probably, ironically, my least favorite Scott Card piece. I mean, How it's funny. brilliant. So I did that, and um, and then we've worked
0: ever, together ever since. So talk about that working relationship, because there are so many books that are Orson Scott Card with Aaron Johnston. Yeah. How... How's your collaboration? How does that work?
1: Well, it's, it's evolved, and it's, we've done a number of different things
0: together. How many together. books have you guys done? We've done six books together. Incredible. <clears throat>
1: and we have four more that we're contracted to do uh, um, that are still coming out that need to be written, or they're in the process of being written. Um, so, at the time, after I got laid off from this agency, it was the, it was the best thing that could have happened to me. Because Scott Card c- came to me and said, and again we knew each other really well at this point, and said, "Hey, uh, my novel *Enders Game* is under development in it, with Warner Brothers. It's been optioned. Wolfgang Peterson is a director is attached to direct it. I would like to hire you to go out to L.A. and represent, to be part of my film development company and represent me there." And I said, "What? What? <laughs> um, what
0: a dream! I, I mean, wow." Yeah.
1: It was, it was, but and yet even though it was a dream offer for us, it still. Lauren and I still thought hard and prayed about this for a month before we actually accepted the position because I didn't feel necessarily competent enough to do what he was asking. Mm, like, okay, interesting. You know, I've been doing advertising for the past couple of years. Yeah, I was a film minor, but am I, I guess, I, I loved and respected Scott and, and Christine so much I didn't want to ruin things for them right. right I didn't want to mess this up but eventually we had prayed about it um, we went to temple about this and we decided to do it and so we moved to LA we were we were there for three years and we saw while I was there I wrote a whole bunch of scripts many of which were based on Scott card properties yeah the the, the, the idea was okay when ender when game goes, there's going to be an interest, likely, in other and Scott Card properties. Yeah, and so can we get ahead of that interest? Um, so I, I adapted a series of, of his properties, some lesser-known properties of his, uh, um, uh, as well as some some more known properties. Um, and then Ender's Game went into turnaround. I mean, I could talk about I could talk about this Ender's Game experience for days, but yeah. I won't. Suffice it to say that. Warner Brothers made a bunch of missteps in who they hired to write the script. Mm. Uh, and so, I probably read, goodness, 15 different drafts of Ender's Game with a series of folks who were brought in who, who desperately wanted to script, write a script about anything other than Ender's Game. So we would get these, we, you know, and this is a beloved novel. it right? has got
0: to be so hard to see.
1: It was. It was. It was. It was a, an excruciating experience, and it was. It was painful because a, I love Scott. B, I love the property, and C, I knew the potential that it had uh, on the big screen. And so to have all these writers come in and want to write something other than Enders Game. And also, in their defense, Ender's Game is a really hard book to to adapt because I don't know if you're familiar with the book, but much of it is, yeah. is written in in Ender's head, right? And so yeah. there's there's a lot of uh, first person narrative from from the perspective of Ender that you just can't capture, or if you right. did capture it in film, it would be in voiceover, which is just a, yeah. a universally hated um, tactic. in in filmmaking it's just not it's just not a technique that doesn't come across yeah right doesn't really so anyway so it's a very very hard novel to to adapt
0: sounds like it wasn't the most satisfying so release overall
1: that's fair yeah and 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 there's a long history of what happened in between because wolfgang peterson left and another director was brought on after the film and a turnaround. I mean we thought for a while that that Indus game would never get made. and this is what I've learned. The instant you become involved in a, a project for which you feel impassioned about, and particularly if you're involved as a writer, um serious compromises begin. <laughs> right? Because you have this It's gotta be so hard you, though. It it, it it is. You have this expectation and you have in your mind an understanding of the potential of the property, but instantly you have to compromise.
0: And then there was at the time there was some swirling controversy about Scott all of a sudden in the Hollywood community,
1: yeah you exactly. know that he's a member
0: of the church and he stood by the church and everything and
1: yeah, so this was around the time of prop 8. Uh, you know the church was very vocal at yeah. the time. And, and, the, and, and the church was encouraging uh, members of the church in that community to be vocal as well and to participate in, right. in protecting um, traditional marriage. And a lot of very good, faithful Mormons followed that counsel yep. and were very vocal about uh, supporting traditional marriage, and it was catastrophic to their careers. Yeah. Uh, and Scott Card was, I would say is probably the biggest casualty of that.
0: Uh, He's the one I know most.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, and it hit at the worst possible time. You know, he and I were also at the time we had signed a deal for DC comics. We were doing a, uh, we were going to do a new Superman series. Mm. Um, it was a digital only series that, um, he was in, in, investing in some pretty well-known authors. Uh, and Scott and I had already done some comics at the time. Um, and that whole thing fell apart. You know, and, and, and here, I Superman is just a hero of mine. Yeah. And I grew up on comic books. And so, so for me, this was the golden goose to work on Superman. Um, and we actually wrote several, several issues. Um, and Jim Lee... Who, if you know comics, you know Jim Lee is is like one of if not the if not the greatest artist, comic artist of all time. Yeah, um, certainly one of them. Um, Anyway, Jim was very complimentary of our scripts and very excited about what we're doing. And um, and then because of Prop Eight, because of all the controversy with Scott being a defender of traditional marriage, that disappeared, and Superman was never published. Sadly, uh, but also it, it also greatly affected um, Ender's Game. This was prior to Ender's Game being released. I mean, it could not have come. At yeah, a worse I was going to
0: say. I remember it like I remember three or four weeks before the release is when all of a sudden Hollywood kind of said, "Wait a minute."
1: Yeah, and and it was actually it, it was it was even a little sooner than that because mm. it was they didn't invite Scott to Comic Con. They didn't want it to be to be a part of the Ender's Game panel with Harrison Ford and others. And so, the these, wow. this, the the whole production, uh Odd Lot and, and Lionsgate were really distancing themselves for Scott because uh, he there was just a giant bullseye on him. Um, and it was, you know, and, and again, I love Scott as a friend. He's one of the kindest, yeah. most gracious human beings I know. I have nothing but love and respect for him. And it was a hard thing for him, as yeah. you can imagine, to suddenly... To suddenly, be, because not only was he was it a lot of terrible things being said about him, a lot of untrue things were being said about him, a lot yeah. of
0: blatant falsehoods, all because of discipleship. Yeah, you know he, that's he was, hard. Yeah, that's, he was, I mean that's hard. It's like, hey, I did what I was supposed to do. He did. What I stood up for what I was told to stand up for, mm-hmm. and now I have all of these consequences.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, and it, that's it. it, it was re, 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 emotionally, professionally. And it, I,
0: I understand that that it was Scott's name that's being, you know, dragged through the mud and everything else. Yeah, but the novels are Scott Card and Aaron Johnston. You're getting hammered by all these same things.
1: Yeah, it's been it's been it's been somewhat challenging. I recently did a uh, an Ask Me Anything on Reddit, and and that just opened the floodgates of questions on. Okay, well, where do you stand on, on on this position, and how you know where? How do you feel about Scott Card as a person? And um, and I'm very open and honest about my faith. I'm I'm also very open and honest about my respect for Scott. It it broke my heart to see what Scott endured, particularly knowing what his motivation was, right? Um, knowing where his heart is. Uh, it's been it's been and it continues to persist. You know, in fact. You know, he and I were invited to Fan X at the time it was Salt Lake Comic Con. Yeah. We were both gonna be guests there. And and this was this was only like two or three years ago. And the whole not the whole, but a large part of that community went ballistic because again they have a they have this preconceived notion of what Scott Card is, this false notion of what he is, who he is. Mm. Uh, and there was all these threats of violence and threats of boycotting. And, and Scott, very gracious, they stepped back and said, you know, I, I think I'll just pass, right?
0: And,
1: and, the, and the con. Aaron, what a shame. Yeah, yeah, really. And, 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 and it wasn't even out of solidarity. The con actually disinvited me after that. You know, they asked me not to come, um, which was fine. Um, <laughs> yeah, um,
0: but after all that much work. I mean, Aaron, that's a big deal. Like these yeah. things are painful.
1: Yeah, it has been. It's been it's been a hard thing.
0: You're seeing firsthand the cost of discipleship.
1: Yeah, and and again, I I don't want to suggest that <clears throat> that I've been a casualty of this more than Scott
0: has because he certainly has taken sure. the grunt of this. Yeah. Um But I don't I wouldn't short sell Again, you're tied. I mean, yeah. you know, your names are on the covers of the books. Mm-hmm. So let 's shift over to some happier uh, <laughs> happier and better stuff. How thrilling was it the first time you saw your name on the cover of a book uh,
1: that was exciting yeah it was um, what was the first book it was called invasive procedures it was a it was a medical biotech thriller mm. uh, it wasn't even a traditional it's science fiction obviously but not traditional science fiction and uh, I read the short story it's actually the short story is written um, as like a series of journal entries mm. um, and cool. so, it, it, so it, has a, it has a kind of an atypical stru- yeah. structure to it. But I read the short story, and I was like, Scott, this is a movie. <laughs> you know, I told him, I was like, yeah. we have to adapt this. This, is, this premise is so funky, weird, exciting. Um, we, this can go in so many different directions, right? So I wrote, a, I wrote an adaptation of this. Scott and I expanded the story. Um, I wrote a screenplay for it. We changed the name. Uh, and Scott read it and it's like, this is cool. I like this. This is fun. He's like, do you mind if I show this to my editor at Tor? And Tor is the publisher, probably the biggest publisher of science fiction and Scott's publisher. I'm like, sure. Um, so, he did, and the editor there, Beth Meacham, is like, oh, this is cool. This, can this be a book? And Scott says to me, you want to write a book? <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and, again, this is just one of those happy accidents I referred for to later. I'd, I'd never written a novel before. Um and, and so, like, breaking into publishing is astronomically hard. I mean, it is yeah. – because being a gifted writer, that's a given. That's par for the course, yeah. right? Because there are so many people that are just brilliant writers, but breaking in is hard. Um, and Scott essentially opened that door for me and turned on the lights and introduced me to the people who were there. Yeah. Um, and I still had to write the book. Right, right. Um, which I can't imagine how daunting that was. It was very daunting. It took me nine months, um, but it was. It was really yeah. daunting. But it, that's how, kind of how I cut my teeth. But what I would do, though, is I was desperate for it to sound like a Scott Card novel. Yeah. Because I knew that both of our names would be on it. So, I had this system where every morning before I started writing, I would randomly pick a book of his, all of them I had read already, and I would read a few chapters mm. so that I could get into the get into novelistic mindset. pacing yeah, wow. of, of, of a Scott Card novel.
0: Oh, Aaron, that's um,
1: cool. Because the question I probably get asked the most is, how does this work with you and Scott? What is the process, the writing, this this co-authoring, how does that work? For some writers... You know, I'll write a chapter. you read a chapter. you'll revise my chapter. I'll revise it. There's a different systems, but that's not how Scott and I work. Scott and I essentially work like, okay, what is this novel How What is it? What's the story? Who are the people? Let's sit down. we'll ha- let's have let's just knock this thing out story wise. We'll have several story sessions in person. We'll have several follow up calls. maybe we'll do a flurry of emails afterwards. and then I write the book.
0: Aaron, it's incredible. It is do you incredible. still do you still kind of pinch yourself when people say, New York Times best-selling author, Aaron Johnston?
1: Uh, So, you know, the caveat is, the reason why I'm a New York Times best-selling author is because I had the incredible fortune of playing in a sandbox that had already been created for which there was a massive fan base. Yeah, that's really humble, though.
0: Um, I mean, that's very (laughs) humble of you, but you wrote the books. I did, I did. And so... You know, it's awesome. I just think it's so neat. Like, how many people can say that? How many people can say they are a published New York Times best-selling author? It's incredible. It
1: was, yeah. I, I, it's been, it's been a wonderful journey, and I I feel so grateful to Scott. That's awesome. That he would trust me to bring me along and
0: let me. And there's more to come.
1: There's more to come. All right,
0: two more things I want to make sure we hit on. First of all, let's talk about extinct. Sure. How did extinct come about? So uh,
1: when I was in when I was at BYU, um, I was in a small little student film called "The Last Good War," which was uh, a World War II film directed by Ryan Little. Ryan Saints and Soldiers. Yeah, how it happened was I came out here to Utah to this science fiction convention called Life, the Universe, and Everything that takes place in Provo every year. Uh, and I met up with Ryan there, and he said, you know, I've done several of these Saints and Soldiers shows, uh, movies. Adam and I, and we're kind of being known for. That's the only kind of work I get now. Oh, you're the World War II guy. He's like, and I don't want that to be my identity. He's like, what if we did a science fiction feature? And I said, that sounds fun. It also sounds insane, because science fiction is expensive, right? And, And the kind of movies you shoot aren't. You know, you're known for you're known for shooting a three hundred thousand dollar movie and making it look like a five million dollar movie, which is one of your gifts, right. you Adam. But science fiction is another beast. So uh, he said, "Okay, yeah, granted, I agree with you, but but what if we could? What if we tried? Right?" And so I said, "This sounds exciting." I said, "Do you mind if I bring in Scott Card?" And they're like, "Yeah, sure. If you want to, if Scott wants to play, let's let's see what we can do." So Scott and I created the premise for Extinct. So, he wrote this based on the premise that the human race has been wiped out. We are an extinct species, but several centuries in the future, a seemingly benevolent alien race decides, for whatever reason, to regenerate a few humans, Mm. to, to bring the human race back. And the humans don't know why, and for some reason, they also still have their memories from their original life on earth, because these aren't these these aren 't new creatures these these were these were humans that were alive mm. during the during the war that led to the uh, the annihilation of the human race they don 't know each other and they don 't know why they 're here, um, so we thought that a very fun premise yeah um, great. and Scott Swafford, who was the um, at the time who was the content director content uh, director at byU TV good Friends with Adam Abel, the producer, said they had lunch one day. He's like, Hey, what are you guys working on? Oh, we're doing this feature film with Aaron Johnson and Orson Scott Cards, a science fiction thing. And he said, Oh, that sounds interesting. He's like, You know, we're looking to retire Granite Flats, which was kind of their, their first scripted dramatic right. series on BYU TV, and we're looking for a new entity. He's like, Scott said, Do you think this could be a TV show? And so Adam feverishly comes back to me and's like, Aaron could we do Extinct as a TV show? And I said, absolutely not. He said, of course not. We can't do this as a TV show. We've structured it as a feature. We've made a beginning, middle, and end. But TV, by definition, is a beginning and a middle and a middle and a middle and a middle that's that goes serial. on. This long. Yeah. It's a serialized. And so, that's not what the show is. That's not what the, well, it's not what the idea is. And he said, okay, yeah, agreed. But could it be? What would we If it was a TV show, how would we alter it? I said, well, we would alter it dramatically. And so, you know, I called up Scott and we had a few calls. We talked about the story and we, uh, and then we went back to Scott Swafford. I think actually we, this was like a series, I think it was like three days from, from the moment we, we, we basically scrapped everything we had done for the <laughs> feature except for the basic premise.
0: How was it uh, working on it? You worked You worked on the
1: show as well. I did, yeah. So, I actually wrote all the episodes yeah. of the show. So, it was, it, was, um, it was probably professionally the highlight of my career, I think. You know, I had seen worlds that I had helped create come to fruition on paper and in the minds of readers, yeah. but I'd never seen something
0: I created physically take shape in Sheesh. front of my eyes. So, are you thinking that Extinct might take on life somewhere else, or is that over and done So
1: in your uh, mind? So we did sign a three-book deal with our publisher for Extinct, so Extinct will be a trilogy of novels. Right on. So we'll we'll finish that story in
0: novels. Total shift now. Mm-hmm. Total shift. What, a month ago, month and a half ago, whatever it was, I'm sitting there on my phone, suddenly a message from the church pops up, hey, there's a whole new app. There's an exciting app, uh, yeah. the Gospel Living app. It's different than anything we've ever had. Suddenly, resources o plenty pops up. Tell us about what you're doing now.
1: So it's funny because about two years ago, my son was in this is kind of the Genesis. My son was in a terrible bike accident where he ruptured his liver, oh. uh, and it was life threatening. He had to be life flighted to a primary children's hospital. Gosh, it was a scary. terrifying ordeal. The, the scariest thing that's ever happened to our family. We thought yeah. we might lose our son. Uh, um, but at the time, you know, I was, I was uh, independent. I was a novelist. I, you know, I was writing other things. Uh, but we had like Obamacare insurance, which we thought was great. We certainly paid out the nose for it. Um, but that experience, I mean, I think in the end, I think Jake, that's my son, the medical bills beyond our deductible, I think it was like a twenty, dollars 25000 unexpected mm. expense for us. Um, and Lauren and I were like, wow, it'd be really nice to have good insurance. Yeah, <laughs> You know? Um, it is. And yeah. so, uh, and I wasn't really actively looking for work. I was doing, we were doing fine. Yeah, um, But I stumbled upon that there was an opening at the Enzyme magazine, assistant managing editor for the Enzyme. So, we thought and prayed about it, and we said, okay, let's give it a try, I guess. So, I was on the Enzyme for 10 months, and I loved it. Um, and then this new op- opportunity at the church came, and they asked me to help lead this effort with the Gospel Living app. So, I'm the managing editor of the content for the Gospel Living app. I don't know how long Incredible. I'll do this, Yeah, but... Um, it's, it's neat to do because I know that what we're creating actually has an impact, because that's how we're really creating. We're creating an opportunity for the Holy Ghost to do what He does best, mm. and to touch people's hearts and inspire them to, to set a goal or do something in their life that's going to draw them closer to Jesus Christ or help them become more like Jesus Christ. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I Aaron, one of the neat things about your life is like, you know, oh, there's that book, that I wrote, oh, there's that TV show that mm. I did. oh, you're on the app that I was a big part of. You're leaving a legacy that I think is so neat. and it's why we wanted to have this this podcast was to highlight people like you who've done so much good in the world continue to do so. You're kind That's i nice. I have thoroughly enjoyed this. I you know we're we're at time, but I mean, I could spend another couple hours asking <laughs> you questions. and uh, and again, I want to make sure it's on here too. Your reputation is unbelievable. You're kind,
1: Sean. We have
0: so many mutual friends who just the minute your name is mentioned, they light up, and and I know why. I mean, you really are making the world a better place, and so thank you for taking this time. Thank you. Uh, We're going to wrap up with the question. I don't know that I prepared you for this one. I can't remember if I did or not. It's all right. Shoot. We're going to wrap up with the question. We asked the same question of all of our guests, and that is, what does being a member of the church mean to you?
1: what i love about the gospel of jesus christ is and i and i feel like this is a reflection of my own career as well a lot of people have placed a great deal of confidence in me trusted me to achieve something oh yeah you want to write a book oh you want to write a comic series oh you want to write a tv series yeah you can do this right even even if i didn't have that own confidence in myself i feel like other talented Gracious people have had that confidence in me, and that's what has defined all of my success. People trusting me, you know, handing me something that I maybe didn't necessarily deserve to have, but giving it to me and believing that I could create something wonderful with that. Mm. To me, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, I, I, I think about God has entrusted us with things that we may not necessarily feel like we deserve, but he has all this tremendous confidence in us that we can create something Mm. glorious and beautiful and wonderful um, with his careful guidance and participation. Um, What the gospel of Jesus Christ means to me is um, discovering the divinity that God sees in us And that we may not see for ourselves just yet. I mean, that is the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that we can become like him. And at the moment, we can't even begin to understand him fully, or at least not to the the degree that we eventually will. But I think that is what's beautiful about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Despite knowing all of our weaknesses, despite knowing of all of our inexperiences, um, all of our foibles, uh, God the Father puts enormous confidence and gives us an opportunity to show Him and do something great. Mm-hmm. And that's why I love going to church. That's why I love raising my family in the gospel of Jesus Christ, because I can. we can experience what the gospel not – only, not only joy – But just the greatness and the goodness that the gospel of Jesus Christ allows us all to participate in and to create ourselves. Um, And I'm tremendously grateful for that. I'm grateful for my parents that, you know, even though they came from a background where religion was an afterthought uh, or even a a dismissed thought, Mm. that they were loving enough and kind enough to embrace this, which has changed our family forever. Uh, and I couldn't be more grateful to them uh, for that, and to the people that brought them the gospel. So, that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ means to me. And it's also, I think it's very similar to what being a parent is, because you do the same thing as a parent, where you, you see all the greatness and the goodness that your children can create, um, even if they can't see that themselves. Yeah, uh, And eventually, they'll get there.
0: That's that's what God's pattern is, I think. I love it. It's <laughs> awesome. He is a father, a husband, he is a producer, a screenwriter, and again, I'll say it, a New York Times bestselling author. Thank you so much for sitting down and sharing your latter-day life with us, Aaron. We appreciate it. Thank you, Sean. I'm very grateful. And my special thanks to my friend Aaron Johnston. I... So grateful for Aaron, and he's such a talented, amazing guy and such a humble, good man as well. Aaron, thank you so much. Uh, This week in my Latter-day life, I'm assuming it looked like a lot of people's Latter-day lives, I'm so grateful for the uh, responders and, and the front line, as we're calling them, the people who are essential, who are out there working, and please just stay safe. We are all praying for you. But I have been home, and I've been home a ton. And this is, for a guy who's on an airplane every week, this has really been a long time at home. There are parts of it I've loved and parts of it that have been tricky. And one of the things is I I tend to look at news a lot. I like to read news and different articles and, and try to figure things out. And there have been so many conflicting Uh, news pieces and spokespeople about what's happening. And it's been confusing. And then we sat down for conference this past weekend. And on Saturday morning, we turned on our television. And as we watched, and the prophet stood up and began to speak, I started to cry. And I couldn't figure out why I was so emotional. He wasn't saying anything incredible yet. (laughs) But I finally realized it was just that he was speaking truth. And with so much conflict out there, to hear pure, unvarnished truth was just beautiful. And then I began devouring conference with my family, as I know you did, and it was so motivating and uplifting and inspiring. I just felt like we needed every word of it. And then it came to an end, and the prophet stood uh, to announce what temples were going to be coming. And I mean, it was so exciting to hear Uh, The United Arab Emirates was getting a temple. And in the Congo, I mean, this was all just mind-blowing to me. But when the prophet announced that there was going to be a temple in Shanghai, China, I began to sob. I just began to cry and cry. And a little bit of uh, point of reference. uh, I've been to China maybe 10 or 12 times throughout the course of my career, into mainland China. And twice I've been to Shanghai, and such a beautiful city. And I'll never forget the first time I was there. I was in Shanghai on business with Jason Bringhurst, who has been a guest on this show. He is the author of the blog uh, Rocky Mountain Sunshine, which is such a great blog. And uh, he and I were there on business over a weekend, and we were walking back to our hotel, and there was a kind of a blockade there. We had to go a different route and it was because there were some limousines coming through. And we found out later that those limousines were the president of France at the time, was visiting Shanghai, and was having meetings and was speaking while he was there. And uh, we got back to our hotel and wanted to see news about it, kind of understand what was happening. And we turned on CNN International. And of course, If you've been to other countries, you've seen CNN International. It's not just for one country. It covers all different countries, and then they broadcast it all around the world. So we were watching CNN International, and the story came on. They said that today the president of France was in Shanghai, and he really praised the Chinese government for this, that, and the other. However, he condemned them for, and boom, our screen went black. And for, I don't know, 30 seconds, a minute, that screen was black. And when it came back up, it was a totally different story. They had blacked out any negative words about the Chinese government. And I remember looking at Jason, and Jason looked at me like, what just happened? We're so used to living in a country that you can say what you want to say, and there's freedom of speech. And I remember just thinking, the church will never really thrive here. The government is just so oppressive. And over the years, I mean, this was probably back in 2004, was probably somewhere around there. And over the past many years, China has really changed and developed. And I've gone to church in China many times. You can go to church, but it's very, very small meetings. And it's very, very different. And I just thought, I don't see a path for the church to take off here. And even though this is going to be a very different temple, and even though it's going to be just for local people and maybe just for a short amount of time, to hear our prophet announce that there will be (laughs) temple work done in Shanghai, China, it absolutely blows me away. And it's the greatest thing and the church is rolling forward, and to hear that it's going into parts of the world that we just never thought possible, the Lord knows how this is all going to end. And it was so inspiring in a time that I feel pretty powerless sitting in my house to know that this word is moving forward, and the work is going forward, and the Lord knows how it will end. He has not forgotten us. He knows his church. He knows his people, and he will keep it moving. And this will eventually pass. And I just pray that someday I will get to do a temple session in China, out in the open, and how wonderful that day will be. And I'm just as excited for people in Syracuse, uh, Utah, to get theirs. All these temples, and to hear the statistics, what a blessing. And it just made me redouble my efforts uh, that, that eventually, when it all opens again, I'm sure you're doing the same. I can't wait to go to the temple. I can't wait to do all these good things. What a blessing this conference was. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day Life. Thank you so much for tuning in this week and every week. We sure appreciate it. While we're in lockdown, If you can think of someone who's desperate for good content, uh, we would love it. If you would uh, share this with them, that would be just great. If you want to reach out to me directly, I can be reached at sean at latterdaylives.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. Love to have you follow us there. Well, that's about it for this week. So until we meet again, there is a great big beautiful world out there. (laughs) Or so they tell me. (laughs) I think it'll be waiting for us later. And when it is, we'll go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening.